0: This is the 96AD Podcast, Episode 3, Background 2, The Late Republic. In this episode, I'll take the Republic from its height following the Punic Wars to the Stark Division of Classes and the rise of Gaius Marius in 100 BC. Up until now, the class struggles in the Republic have taken a back seat to the military exploits, But now that the Republic has extended itself over the Mediterranean, the class struggles will come to center stage. Last episode, I left you with Rome at something of a peak, though this was somewhat disingenuous. Carthage and Macedonia still need to be formally added to the Empire, but for all intents and purposes, by 189, the entire Mediterranean, save Egypt, was under the control of Rome. In the late 180s BC, both Hannibal and Scipio would meet their ends, more or less bringing a close to the generations who fought in the Punic Wars. And now Rome was presenting to the world a generation of Romans who knew nothing but full victory for Rome, and had grown up with the riches and success that conquering the Mediterranean brought. It seemed that the general mood in the capital of the Romans was that Rome needed not extend more, and so actually administering and governing regions like North Africa and Greece were temporarily out of the question. For now, they just make do with massive peace bribes from them. For the first time since its birth, Rome actually had a pile of money that burned a hole in their pockets, and so they spent lavishly. Massive celebrations for their victories were held, and massive infrastructure projects were started in the Eternal City. The Greeks would not go down so easily, and for decades the city-states that dotted the Greek lands would be continual thorns in the Roman side, Massive power bases in Greece rose up against the Romans in the 180s and 170s. The Romans were beaten in battle several times by at times guerrilla forces and at times full phalanxes. It took until 168 BC to get a decisive victory for the Romans, and it was a close one. Had it not been for the cavalry and the fact that the phalanx was quite outdated, the Romans may have lost. The center of this anti-Roman insolence was Corinth. And in 146 BC, the Romans won more decisive victories, eventually laying waste. To the once great Greek city that could at times rival even Athens. Corinth wouldn't again be the center of power. The Greek independence movement died in the city of Corinth, and nearly all resistance immediately dissipated. Now let's roll back the clock a few years. Keep in mind that after the Battle of Zama, which concluded the Second Punic War in 202 BC, Carthage was not added into the Roman Empire. Carthage had been left independent obviously paying large sums of money to Rome, and giving up effectively all their territories. However, some of the old senators of Rome couldn't stand allowing the mighty foe of the Romans to keep on existing. Carthage, despite the humiliating terms of peace, had again become a prosperous city by the 150s. This brought, largely unfairly, the Senate to fear the return of Carthage. The aggressive arguments of specific senators in Rome eventually led to the Third Punic War, which was more or less a formality. Carthage surrendered by the times the Romans reached Sicily. The Romans, however, twisted into a massive rage by the senators back home, decided that no less than the destruction of the city and the relocation of its inhabitants would be acceptable terms. The heir of Scipio, Scipio Aemilianus, led the charge into the city in 146, the same year as the destruction of Corinth. The Carthaginian garrison, though hopelessly outclassed, fought street by street with every fiber of their being but they were utterly defeated. The city was erased, leveled, and like Corinth, would never see the same heights again. Now Rome was literally in charge of the entire Mediterranean. They literally had administrative control over the entirety of the Mediterranean, save Egypt again. Now truly the Romans would look inwards. And when they did, they'd find the Republic collapsing. Several authors that I have read stated that the fall of the Republic has its roots in the destruction of Carthage and Corinth. They fell in 146 BC and exactly 100 years, Julius Caesar would win his civil war and become a single man in charge of Rome, exactly what the Republic was built to avoid. But that's a ways away. Let's first meet his predecessors. The Romans were rich beyond their wildest dreams. Expensive imports from all around the Mediterranean were brought to Rome, and Greek culture already started taking roots in the aristocrats. The first public baths were opened, which would become a staple of Roman life until the rise of Christianity. This period of economic explosion in Rome resulted in the rich aristocrats becoming even more rich. Massive amounts of land were being bought up, and the massive amounts of slaves from the conquered lands were brought in to till the fields and sow the seeds. In the prosperity that followed the fall of Corinth and Carthage, it was counterintuitively harder for normal citizens to rise up the social ladder. Large amounts of gold, slaves, and metals were being brought in from the provinces. However, the destruction of metropolitan cities would hamper the economies, and suddenly, less money would be flowing in than expected. Enrichment for Rome was only found in tax collection, which only benefited those who collected the taxes, and the Senate, which collected the taxes, was the one who benefited. What actually occurred was sort of an economic crisis. The aristocrats would abuse their position, wealth, and power to keep themselves afloat, and those down on their luck or simply born in the wrong family were on the receiving end of this abuse. A source of the failure in the republic fell in the hands of the conservative senate. I've best heard it described as stability becoming rigidity. There were nary a new idea presented in the senate, and any unprecedented legislation was denied just about immediately. Growth was simply not allowed. It would risk the riches of the rich in the senate to lose their precarious position at the top of Rome's power pyramid. With conquest slowing down, the masses started to realize that they weren't benefiting from these campaigns, that they were fighting for an empire that gave nothing back. See, when they were at war, all the Romans had A common enemy, and this is a common trend that you'll see throughout history. If the people in charge managed to find a common enemy for the people, those in charge could get away with just about anything, because no one was paying attention. But the moment it became quiet, the abuse that they caused would come to the front. The Romans realized that the nobility had taken advantage of them, since there was no longer the shiny distraction of Hannibal sitting outside Rome to make the masses forget that it's the Senate's fault that they're all broke. I'd like to mention that there's no political parties in Rome, and overwhelmingly, the prominent men of the state would sway in whatever direction would guarantee them the next step up the political ladder or financial gain. But it's around this time, the 130s BC, that we see sort of a party system developing, but people would jump from party to party all the time. The senators would be roughly divided into two teams that may not have had specific legislative agendas that they shared, they simply wanted to see the other side fail. These are sometimes described as optimates and populares. Optimates being the best people, these would be your aristocrats, which also means the best people, the conservatives, and the populares are the reformers. For simplicity, I'll describe them as reformers and conservatives. But do keep in mind that these were never official factions. In fact, nobody would ever stay fully in one side or the other. Pompey, Marius, would jump from one to the other whenever the political landscape felt like it. Frequently, reformers would end up conservative later in their career, as some new radical position would define the new opposition. The conservatives wanted to keep Rome as it was, and the reformists represented the opposition. They wanted to change something. Usually they wanted land reform, government reform, free and subsidized food, The normal things that citizens would want when they're being taken advantage of by the state. Until the end of the Republic, we will encounter eight men in four pairs that directly contributed to the end of the Republic. We could count a total of nine if we include Scipio Africanus, who has already been briefly discussed. The remainder of this episode and the majority of the next two will focus on these eight people. I understand the pitfalls of great man history, where, if we focus solely on the individual men and women who defined an era, we lose out on all the history that happened around them. Since there were millions of others who were moving history forward as well, we need to consider their perspectives. I will, however, make a case for it, and for the sake of this podcast. Firstly, I enjoy it. I enjoy it because it provides a very simple narrative to follow, and it's fun to latch to these characters and relate to them personally, and it makes it easy to jump into more complicated issues. If we understand a person, a character, like Julius Caesar or Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus, who we will soon meet, we can understand their motives, and so we don't have to appreciate hundreds of years of social history that led up to these ideas. We can appreciate it through their lens, and this becomes the jumping point into the rest of the history. Additionally, it makes for simplicity in the podcast. Right now, I am trying to do a brief discussion of the history of Rome leading up to 68. I don't have time to spend on smaller issues. It's easy to present it in this way. It's easy to follow the narrative of these 8 men which come in 4 distinct pairs. We can follow the Gracchi. We can follow Sulla and Marius. We can follow Pompey and Caesar, and we can follow Octavian and Mark Antony. And since I enjoy it, I assume other people enjoy it as well, and I have proof of this. The proof comes from the ancient histories. The ancient histories that we have surviving are largely in this form. Suetonius' The Twelve Caesars are biographies of the first 12 emperors, 11 emperors and Julius Caesar. This was the historical tradition that was followed through ancient Rome. We have authors like Livy who would provide a normal narrative of history but for the most part we have people describing biographies. Biography was massive and that's where we get most of our sources from and so to consider the most of our sources for a topic we have to delve into biography. So in the interest of making this podcast interesting, simple, and effective and making easy use of ancient sources I will be going through eight figures for the next 100 years of history. However, believe me, once we get to the Flavians and the Antonines, and we have the time to delve into smaller topics, I will. So, to reasonably sift through all this history in the next 20 or so minutes, we'll tackle the end of the Republic through a couple themes and trends, and we'll follow those themes and trends through the people that spearheaded them. Let's delve into the first of the men that helped kill the Republic dead. Now, for the first ones were the two that didn't kill the Republic. In short, the careers of Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus simply showed the weaknesses in the Republic and created a mold for future Caesars to fill in. So I'm not blaming the Gracchi for the end of the Republic. They didn't kill it. They aren't Julius Caesar. But their stories are important for understanding Caesar and especially understanding Marius and Sulla. And so we'll delve into it. I have briefly touched on the idea that, as a result of the Punic Wars, there was a generation of Romans coming into the 130s BC as knowing nothing but Roman domination and victory. The first of this generation would have watched Corinth and Carthage fall in 146 BC, and Tiberius Gracchus was one of these men. He was in Carthage when it fell, and he was just a teenager, probably 18 or 19, and he would have been just about the youngest Roman to witness the event and would be among the first of the new generation of senators who would govern Rome, which is now at the top of the world. It's said that from a young age, Tiberius witnessed the economic inequality in the provinces and aimed to do something about it. In 137 BC, he was admitted to the Senate as a quaestor, the first step on the career path of a Roman. He eventually found himself attached to a movement based around land reform. I've touched on this earlier, but I'll elaborate now. Rich landowners were buying up and not always giving the sellers an option farmland from native italians the abundance of slaves from the provinces would work these large plantations make the aristocratic occasionally senatorial man rich beyond his belief while the poorer italian farmers are broke and homeless and no doubt would be seeking out the big cities for work since that was the only place they could go the solution was simple individual men would have a limit on how much of the public land they could own and profit from the extra land would be divided up to individual farms and dispersed to the poor via a lottery. This was a simple and efficient idea. and actually had wide-ranging support in the Senate. We must remind ourselves again that the Roman elite was selfish. We should not suggest that the men supporting this bill were altruistic philanthropists. They simply made the calculation that the popular support this bill would generate would propel their career. Anyways, back to the bill. The powerful men behind the bill decided to use the young and influential Tiberius to be the man to charm the Senate into passing it. Once the main opponents of the bill had departed on a campaign in Spain, Tiberius was tasked with forcing the bill through the Senate as fast as possible. The Senate had disapproved of the bill. A quirk in the Roman Republic was that, much like modern democracies, there were two different institutions that new legislation would have to pass through before it could become a law. The first was the Senate, and then the public assembly, where the roaring masses would approve or disapprove legislation. What's odd is that legislation didn't actually have to pass by the Senate first, it only needed the approval of the assembly. And so, and now this was an odd move because no one had really tried this before because you're not really supposed to, Tiberius took the bill straight to the assembly, bypassing the Senate, and ruffling just about everybody's feathers. Tiberius had been elected as Tribune, the powerful popular position that I discussed last episode. And being a Tribune, Tiberius was able to present the legislation. Masses flooded in from all over Italy to show their support, and Tiberius made an incredible speech in support of his bill. However, another Tribune vetoed the bill. The full power of the Tribunate was now at play, and the public assembly had been adjourned. The bill was rewritten to be even more inflammatory and targeted the rich elite. It removed the concessions and it went for the throat, which would create an environment that was so violently supportive of the bill that the other tribune would have to let it pass because the population was so engaged with the bill. But eh, that didn't work. Tiberius went full force and decided that no public business would be conducted since as tribune he could veto anything and everything. The two Tribunes were in a stalemate. To beat the stalemate, Tiberius, on the grounds of not respecting the people, decided to get the other Tribune impeached. When the other Tribune was successfully deposed, which was nuts, he had barely escaped with his own life. The land reform bill, called the Lexigaria, became law. Unfortunately, the Senate managed to neuter the commission that was set up to enforce the bill, providing almost no funding. The bill was law, yes, but it couldn't really accomplish anything. Tiberius tried to get a second term as Tribunate, which was unheard of, but the fiery support was just not there anymore. People stopped caring once the bill became law, and it's hard to get the masses violently supportive of a bill that was passed but not super effective. A brawl would then break out between Tiberius and the Senate, leaving hundreds dead, including the young Tiberius Gracchus himself. No funerals were allowed for Tiberius and his followers. It was a mad show of force by the Senate. They let the attack happen and let it slide unpunished. For weeks, the Senate loomed over the populace, and any man suspected of supporting Tiberius was executed. The Lexigaria itself was, however, not repealed. The Senate just couldn't find a way to do it and not get their heads on a pike. Gaius Gracchus the younger brother of Tiberius, was still a commissioner for the bill, and he had finally reached the age to start his own career in the Roman Senate. Gaius entered Rome less than a year after the death of his brother and proved himself to be one of the most capable men of his generation. So capable that he'll become the second of our eight Republic Enders. In 126 BC, he would be elected quaestor, and in 123 BC, he would become Tribune. The inertia of the career of his older brother, combined with his personal ability, made him win the election handedly and became the dominant tribune. He came to the office of tribune with a fleshed out reform package, clearly he was preparing this for years. He first put forward a bill that would make the tribunal that allowed the purging of Tiberius' allies illegal, retroactively. He passed legislation that gave the commissioners of the Lexigaria more concrete power, which allowed them to actually do things. He pushed for improvements to the roads and other infrastructure, laid plans to establish new communities in the provinces, and gave the poor masses a new place to go. He also adjusted payment to the legions to be more fair, and barred senators from serving on a jury, since it was a conflict of interest. Gaius was now at the center of a political movement, and had just been the most consequential tribune in history. Gaius didn't intend on becoming tribune for a second year, since he was not allowed after all, and look at what happened to his brother when he tried it. Turns out, though that not enough tribunes were elected, just by a quirk of the election, and the rule was that the highest voted tribune from last year should be put in the place, and that was Gaius. So he filled in the 10th spot for the year. Was the vote manipulated? Probably, but we'll never know. For the next little while, Gaius' fans never left his side, he was easily one of the most popular men in the city. He went a bit too far when he suggested that citizenship should be granted to more Italians, but that bill died. Guys would also spend a few months checking out the new colonies that he'd proposed last year. But, while he was gone, and since he also had made a few miscalculations in the legislation of this year, the support for him was slowly petering out. Once he left for a few months, the senators back home went on a flurry trying to drum up support for this and that to get attention away from him. And when he came back, no one is really interested anymore. Guys attempted to get a third term as Tribune. But, the overwhelming accusations of voter fraud caused the consuls to throw him out of the election. Brawls and confrontations in the days after the election ended with his death. The Gracchi were gone, but the reforms had stuck around, and a new generation of Romans grew up in their wake. The Gracchi created a movement. Land reform, free grain allotment, anti-corruption, many others, became the foundation of the Populares movement that would define the next century. One of the young aristocrats of the Gracchi generation was Gaius Marius. Marius was a new man, meaning that his family had not yet produced a senator. It was exceptional for a new family to reach senatorial status, and it was even more so for a first-generation senator to become actually successful, to become consul. The clique nature of the senate prevented newcomers, and the conservative senate didn't want anyone from the lower rungs to get into their elite club. Marius would overcome this because of his sheer ability and become the third of the eight republic enders. Marius used connections with powerful senatorial families to kickstart his early career, and in 122 BC he was a quaestor and it was admitted to the Senate. He had spent many years in the military, fighting with distinction in Spain and Gaul, which eventually propelled him to the tribunate in 119 BC. He failed to reach the aedileship but managed to become Praetor, one of the senior magistrates, and was able to govern provinces and lead armies. In 116 BC, Marius barely survived accusations of tampering with votes, but regardless, had successfully become Praetor. However, this was very controversial. After his term serving in the courts of Rome, he was appointed to govern Spain. He won some minor battles and profited off of the mines, he returned to Rome in 113 extremely rich and somewhat successful. Back in Rome, Marius secured a connection with a senatorial family. He married the young daughter of this particular family, who, despite being very aristocratic, had not had much success recently in the Senate. The marriage was then mutually beneficial. The senatorial family would gain from Marius's success and riches, while Marius would gain from the status of the family. The family was the Julii. Yes, the Julii in Gaius Julius Caesar. Marius served another year in the legions, leading one of them himself. He would see much success, and his personal ability and generosity would endear his soldiers to him. Marius eventually got himself elected as consul, and he was sent back to take control of the entire army that he had once been a subordinate of. It was nearly impossible for Marius to win the consulship as a new man, but with years of planning, and probably lots of voting fraud, he made it happen. Now, let's step aside a bit from Marius and talk about the army. Marius was hoping to set out to North Africa to settle a problem that had been going on for decades. Previous leaders had failed to secure the region, and now he was in charge of securing the entirety of North Africa for good. Marius found, however, that the requisite legions were hard to muster. Rome's legions were, in the olden days, a temporary measure that would only be put together when needed. Farmers would be pulled off their farms for a couple months in the summer to defend their homeland. The soldiers had to be farmers, by the way. Property ownership was a requirement to be part of the legions, as was citizenship. This may seem odd, but was, for the most part, a logical idea. If you were conscripting an army that you weren't paying very well to fight in unpleasant battles, the legionaries would have to want to be there, or you would lose. And if their homes and families were at risk, then you'd have a good and dependable soldier. Random people off the street would not hesitate to switch sides in a battle if it looks like they'll lose, but if your farm is at risk of being pillaged if you lose a battle, if your family's at risk of being sold into slavery, you'll fight to the bitter end. We must remember, however, that there were like no normal farmers left. The rich landowners had bought up all the land, and the masses were in the cities, and they didn't meet the requirements to serve in the legions. In recent years, the requirements had been reduced. But it was not enough. Marius ultimately settled this problem by waiving the requirements entirely. This was really important. The poor man with no farm or land relies on his commander in the army to make a living. The soldier doesn't fight for their home or for their family, they fight for their paycheck. And oh boy, does Marius pay it, and he pays it well. This is the start of the legions which will individually support their commander and not fight for Rome itself. And this is also the start of the civil wars, since with no allegiance to Rome itself, they wouldn't take the calls to come home and stop fighting. And if their commander told them to fight that army, well, are they going to get paid? Yep. better go win that battle then. Marius sailed out with most of his new army to win great battles, but he left the man behind to finish their training. This man was the fourth of our eight Republic killers, Lucius Cornelius Sulla. Sulla was born in 138 BC, and under Marius of 107, he served as a quaestor. Sulla was extremely aristocratic, sort of the opposite of Marius. The importance of his family alone would have gotten him admitted to the Senate easily, but on top of this, he was remarkably skilled. Within a year, Marius had secured North Africa more or less, and the involvement of both men propelled their careers forward. In 105, Sulla himself captured the man behind the decade-long revolt and handed him over to Marius. Sulla would stay attached to Marius for quite a while and see success via osmosis by being one of Marius' most important lieutenants. Marius returned to Rome and appreciated a triumphal procession through the streets in a second consulship, which was nearly unheard of, especially since he had it so close to his first. It was only four years ago. What I've been tiptoeing over up till now has been the invasion of northern Italy. A tribe just north of Gaul had been relentlessly attacking Italy's northern border, and massive defeats were doled out to the Romans. This no doubt inspired fear in the Romans that had not been felt sustainable, and especially not felt since the sack of Rome itself almost 300 years ago. Marius nearly immediately used his consular authority to take an army north in 104. Marius secured another exemption to the requirements for admittance into the legions, and raised up a new army to fight alongside the survivors of the previous defeats. These armies would all become personally endeared to Marius himself. With the success of the Populares, which was Marius, the Populares dominated the senate in the last few years of the second century BC. Many popular reforms were done during Marius's years as consul, but all the while, Marius was reforming the military. He changed up tactics, the makeup of the legions, now they are staffed and organized. These reforms made them much more capable at fighting prolonged campaigns out in the provinces. They could maneuver easier, travel quicker, and in general could outsmart and outplay any enemy battle. Provided you had a competent enough general, which of course Marius was. The Cimbri, the tribe that had been invading northern Italy, did not attack for quite a while. Marius managed to get two consecutive consulships to wait for their attack. And in 102 BC, they did finally attack. Now, since he had years of experience hanging out in northern Italy, Marius was able to easily destroy them and won two massive battles. It's said that he defeated 100,000 men. Battles were being lost in Sicily, and so a fourth consecutive consulship was awarded to Marius, and he turned his army south. Marius would have another stunning victory. Sulla claimed to play a large part in the success as well, and that certainly propelled his career forward, but Marius was at the top of the world. He was hailed as the third founder of Rome. They put him on the pedestal alongside Romulus and another early republican hero called Camillus. Gipio Africanus himself didn't see such an honor. Marius would get up to six consulships by 100 BC. The fifth in a row, by the way. By this point, it seems likely that the population was losing interest in the old general, and Marius would slowly become more conservative over time, as young radicals started to butt heads with him in 199 BC. The massive boost for the populares that started with Marius' consulship was ending, and they started to take up the mantle of the Gracchi, and Marius stamped them out violently. In the end, it seems that the generation that grew alongside the Gracchi had now reached their peak. Gracchi-esque land reform and other populares builds of the Gracchi type were being proposed in a flurry and many a young tribune stood to mimic the success of the Gracchi. 100 BC sees the factions of conservative and reformers being more fractured and disjointed, but we still see hints of those, like Marius, who float between the extremes. In less than a decade, the most radical of radical political battles would take place over the allowance of Roman citizenship to all the Italians. The bill, that Gaius Gracchus failed to push. This would erupt into a real battle that would put the reformers and conservatives at the heads of opposing armies, allowing them to let out their angers in ways they could not in the sanctity of the Senate. Marius would grow jealous of Sulla and they would eventually duke it out. This would be the first major civil war of Rome, pretty much ever, and the result of it is the Republic being propelled to its doom. This all comes from the division that we see at the start of the 5th consecutive consulship of Gaius Marius in 100 BC. And as a final note, 100 BC also marks the birth of what will be our 6th Republic Killer, the nephew of Gaius Marius, Gaius Julius Caesar. That will do it for today's episode. It turns out I've misjudged how quickly I can cover this introductory material. And so I've only managed to cover up to 100 BC in this episode, when I aim to get all the way to 44 BC. What this means is that I'll be taking two more episodes to get to 68 AD, when I intended to do only one more. To make up for this, I'll be releasing these episodes weekly. This episode has been released early, and I plan to release the next one next week. If you want to ask me questions or leave suggestions for the podcast, head on over to my de facto website, the 96AD subreddit. Just head over to reddit.com r 96AD. You can also find the link in the podcast description. I will be posting updates about the podcast there, and I will respond to anybody who posts. Feel free to DM me there as well, and I'm willing to post my sources there if anybody's interested. Another thing you'll find on the subreddit is a PayPal donate button. This is not required or expected. This podcast will remain free, and I don't aim to profit. However, donations will cover the cost of production and will support me, a student who is attempting to study, work, and produce this podcast all at once for some reason. I'll see you in the next episode where we will talk about the rise and fall of my personal favorite historical figure, Julius Caesar. I'm extremely excited to talk about it, and my only struggle will be to keep it all in one episode. I'll see you then.